So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's 1 Corinthians 10.31. This is a familiar verse to us all. It's a popular verse that we see used in devotionals, in mission statements. It's a verse so well known that we might even see it at the bottom of Facebook posts of famous athletes, for example. I saw one of those posts last football season where a certain young Alabama quarterback quoted this verse as he explained that he loved his team and that they were all playing for the glory of God. Whatever the context we may find this verse in, we know this. This verse is a command to do everything we do for God's glory and His glory alone, to seek to please Him in everything we do. Now how that command is lived out practically in our lives, how we interpret what living for God's glory means, that may vary. We often think of that glorifying God means simply enjoying His creation and being thankful for the gifts that we have. We think about doing things that we enjoy, things that benefit us, and think doing that means we are living for the glory of God. While it is good to enjoy what the Lord has given us, we are missing something in our pursuit for the glory of God by narrowing our focus on only things that are good for us. This was a problem in the church at Corinth at the time Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians. Many Christians in the church thought that they were doing things that were you know, beneficial for themselves that were okay to do and that caused no harm to anyone else. They came up with several reasons for these actions, reasons that were based in truth and made them believe that they were truly living for the glory of God. But Paul revealed to them in chapters 8 through 10 that they are truly just living for themselves and that their actions were actually hurting those around them. They thought that they were living for the glory of God, but Paul reveals to them that they are actually misguided. He reveals to them that they, like we are so often, were missing something vital in their pursuit of living for the glory of God. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 10.31 and the surrounding verses to tell the church this truth, which is still so essential for us today. The most important way that we live for the glory of God is by loving others. Again, the most important way that we live for the glory of God is by loving others. We must love people if we truly want to live for God's glory. This is the emphasis of our passage today. This morning, I want us to see this verse that ends with, do all to the glory of God in its proper context. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In this passage, we see two commands from Paul that tell us how to live for the glory of God by living to love other people. So first, in verse 32, we see this command. Glorify God by giving no offense to others. Again, glorify God by giving no offense to others. Verse 32 says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So Paul has just told the church at Corinth to live for the glory of God. Now he tells the church how to do that through their relationships. 
Paul says, give no offense. At first glance, we may think that Paul is telling the church to never offend anyone. Is Paul saying to never disagree with someone, to never tell someone um, that you don't like something that they're doing, to never stand up for the word of God, all for the sake of not hurting someone's feelings? Is he telling us never to offend anyone for any reason? No, of course not. As believers, if we are sharing the gospel, and if we are holding fast to what God's word says, the sad truth is we are going to cause offense to others. Sharing the gospel involves telling people that they are sinful and that they need to repent. Being firmly planted in the word of God means that we are going to disagree with others on some subjects that are likely to cause offense. In seeking to do the things that we know that we should do, that God has commanded us to do, we are going to cause offense to people in our culture. So in light of that truth, we know that Paul is not telling us to avoid offending others at all costs. So what does he mean? So the Greek phrase there that we translate to give no offense might be more literally translated to mean don't cause someone to stumble or don't be a stumbling block to someone. Let's think about what it means to cause someone to stumble for a moment, okay? So if you stumble over something, it means that you trip. Um, you, something is in your way, you trip, you have lost your balance, and you may have to re stop and regain your balance for a second, or you may completely fall. That's more likely in my case. I'm, if I trip, I'm probably just going to be on the ground. So, yeah. so what it means is something has gotten our way that has caused us to our lose our balance. We have to recover our balance. Before we can keep walking towards our goal, we have to kind of collect ourselves before we can start moving again. So being a stumbling block would mean you are the obstacle in someone's way, on their way to a certain path, to a certain goal that causes them to, to stop, to trip, to fall. In order to illustrate this, let's think about this for a second. I drive a small car. I have this problem sometimes when I'm driving my small car. I pull up the stop signs. I'm just I'm just trying to turn right. I'm trying to make sure that nobody's coming so that I can go out into the road and not get hit so I can just turn right and keep going. So in my small car, um, the problem I also face is that businesses and different places um, often put like bushes and small trees in the way so I can't really see if anybody is coming. So what do I have to do? I have to lean out way over my steering wheel, slowly edge forward into the road, make, it, make sure that nobody's coming but it seems like about half the time that I go to do this, some big truck will come into the left lane and will completely block my vision and prevent me from being able to see anything. In this case, the truck has become a stumbling block to me. I'm trying to drive down the road and be safe, but they have got in my way and completely stopped me from doing that. So I need to wait for them to move before I can see and keep going again. That is what being a stumbling block looks like. In a spiritual sense, being a stumbling block often means standing in the way of a believer's growth or maturity or purity or being an obstacle in an unbeliever's path to faith in Christ. Paul is telling the church at Corinth to stop being an obstacle to what he says is Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God, which we can see as simply unbelievers and believers in our day. He's telling them to avoid being a stumbling block to both believers and unbelievers. Throughout 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, Paul has given many examples of what causing stumbling to unbelievers and believers might look like. Let's look at an example of each in the context of those chapters to better understand what Paul means by avoiding causing others to stumble. So, 
1 Corinthians chapter 8 introduces the overall reason that Paul writes this section of the letter in the first place. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, or specifically eating of food offered to idols, as seen in verse 4. The city of Corinth was filled with temples and monuments to other deities, and there were regular sacrifices and feasts made to those deities. Some of the meat sacrificed to those idols often found its way into the marketplace where people could buy it. Um, also, everyone was always welcome at these feasts of the deities. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you were a regular worship to them, worshiper to that deity, you were always welcome. Free food, right? Everybody went to these feasts because there was free food. This means that the Christians in the church at Corinth were constantly faced with the question of whether or not it was okay to eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols. Some members of the church thought that it was okay to eat the meat, arguing that idols aren't real in the first place and there's only one true God anyways. These statements are true. However, there was another group in the church that was being negatively affected by these actions. Turn with me briefly to verses 7 through 9 of chapter 8. Verses there say, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul explains that some people in the church had their consciences defiled by the actions of these other Christians. They were eating meat. These other Christians saw that they were eating the meat and it led to their consciences being defiled. Having a defiled conscience means being tempted to sin, being made to feel guilty, or being actually led into sin. So these more knowledgeable, more mature Christians were leading others to sin by their actions. This is something we, today, must, of course, avoid. We must not be the reason someone else's conscience becomes defiled, leading them to sin, temptation, or guilt. Look at what Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 8. He says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul tells the church at Corinth to take care. This means be careful, be watchful that the things that we do don't seem inherently wrong on the surface. Don't cause others to stumble in their walks with Christ. We have to be careful and make sure that the things we are doing are not causing others to stumble. Here's a few modern examples of what defiling someone's conscience might look like. When we're younger, it may look like convincing a friend to watch something that their parents don't usually allow, causing them to dishonor their parents. As adults, it might look like recommending a TV show to someone who might feel guilty about some of the things that are in that TV show. It might look like offering a drink to a former alcoholic and causing temptation. Practically, taking care to avoid causing stumbling among believers means this. We need to know the things that might cause someone's conscience to be defiled and avoid talking about those things. In order to carefully avoid causing others to stumble, we have to know other people. We need to take care to learn about the past struggles that people close to us may have gone through and avoid talking about things or doing things that may cause their consciences to be defiled. 
This means getting to know people, of course, being honest with one another, and letting people into our lives. It means being open and vulnerable with others. It means being empathetic towards the struggles of our brothers and sisters. It also means letting people know when they've caused us to stumble so they don't do it again. It means lovingly correcting them. Now, knowing the struggles and life story of absolutely everyone that we come into contact with isn't entirely practical all the time. We might not be that close to everyone or need to know everything about someone. But in that case, we should just take care to avoid talking about things that even potentially may be an issue. If we don't know how everyone around us thinks about certain issues or what they may struggle with, it is better to be cautious. It is better to take care and to avoid those topics rather than risk causing stumbling. We have to avoid causing another believer's conscience to be defiled, to avoid being stumbling blocks. Let's look at another example of avoiding being stumbling blocks in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this time in verses 25 through 29. Those verses say, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So Paul gives a couple hypothetical situations here. One, when someone is going to the meat market to purchase meat, they shouldn't worry about where the meat came from. And two, a situation in which a believer is invited to go to dinner at an unbeliever's house. So first he says in verses 25 and 27, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience, or if they're purchasing it from the meat market, just don't worry about where it came from. Paul is saying, if you are buying meat in the meat market, or if someone else offers you food, just eat it. Don't make a big deal out of where it came from. Don't make something out of nothing. Just eat the food. He says, if you don't ask where it came from, your conscience can't be defiled. He says, even if it is sacrificed, if you partake in it with thankfulness to God, you're, you're good. That's the thrust of verses 25 through 27. This might seem a little bit confusing, considering previously in chapter 8, he said, don't eat the meat. Um, but the idea here is not that the problem is in the action itself. The problem is what that action does to other people. The emphasis is on the effect to others. If it is causing harm to others, we just don't do it. However, in verse 28, Paul says this. So back in the, back in the situation where a believer has been invited to an unbeliever's house, he says this. But if they say, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience, not your conscience, but his. So in this case, uh, the unbeliever says, hey, by the way, that food that you're about to eat, that meat that you're about to eat, it's, it's been offered in sacrifice. So we could see this as kind of the unbeliever setting sacrifice meat in front of them to say, well, what are you going to do? Like, you know, are you going to eat it or are you not going to eat it? We could see this as the unbeliever trapping the believer, seeing what they're going to do. I think um, based on the language of the text, um, such as where Paul says, informed you in verse 28, it seems a lot more like the unbeliever is just saying, hey, by the way, I don't really know how you feel about this, but this has been offered in sacrifice. Um, is, is that bad for you to do? Like, you, I just want to warn you. I just want you to take care of that, right? 
So in this case, Paul says, don't eat the meat. Why? Um, it's because the unbeliever thinks that it is wrong for Christians to eat the meat. They are warning them because they think it would be wrong for the Christian to eat the meat. So they, they warn them about the status of the food to prevent them from doing something wrong. So again, Paul says, by all means, do not eat the meat for their sake, for their conscience. The reason that this would offend the believer is because, you know, they think that it is wrong. So by eating the meat, um, the unbeliever would think that the believer is doing something wrong. Paul doesn't say, oh, just explain to them that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to the Lord. He doesn't say explain it away. He doesn't say try to reason with them, try to explain why it's okay for you to eat the meat. He says just don't do it. It's better to completely avoid offending them rather than trying to reason with them using words they don't understand and risk offending them. If the unbeliever was offended, they would see the believer as a hypocrite, and they would not be very likely to listen to them in their efforts to share the gospel, right? So it's important, what was of utmost appointments, is to just avoid offending them entirely rather than risking offending them by eating the meat. So from this, we can learn that we should avoid being a stumbling block by avoiding causing unnecessary offense to unbelievers. We established earlier that by sharing the gospel and following God's commands, we are going to cause offense to others. This offense is necessary offense when we are standing fast on the word of the Lord and are sharing the gospel. But there are definitely situations where we may think we're doing a good job holding tight to God's word, but we are actually causing unnecessary offense. Let's think about this situation for a moment. Let's say you've been building a relationship with a coworker. You want to share the gospel with them. But as you drive into work that way, that day, you see a sticker on the back of their car that lets you know that they are pro-choice. What is the best strategy in this situation? Is it a good idea to walk into work that day and tell them, without them ever saying anything first, that you think they're a horrible human being for believing, for, for believing that abortions are okay, you think that they're completely wrong and then arguing with them for the next 10 minutes over whether or not um, abortions are okay. Does that sound like the best strategy when you're trying to share the gospel with someone? Probably not. Getting in an argument with someone isn't going to make them more likely to listen to you. It isn't going to make sharing the gospel any easier. It is going to result with them being closed off to you, just like in Paul's example, because we caused unnecessary offense to them. So in the same situation with that coworker, avoiding unnecessary offense may look like focusing your efforts on the gospel itself rather than the outlying issues that come from that, from, from the other things that they, the, the hot button issues. It may be better to just focus on the gospel itself rather than these other topics that you know are going to start an argument. It's better to wait for them to ask about your thoughts on the issue rather than arguing about it unnecessarily. Our goal should be to see their hearts change for the sake of their salvation, not convince them that they're wrong about certain beliefs. Sharing the gospel should be our first priority. At the same time, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, if we are asked what our opinion is on a touchy subject, or we are put in a situation where we have to choose between standing up for God's word or lying to them, we should always choose to stand fast on the word of the Lord. Lying about our beliefs or sugarcoating something is never the answer. This is not a command to sacrifice our integrity for the sake of never offending anyone, but the idea here is to avoid unnecessary offense, to avoid offending believers if at all possible, 
choosing to focus evangelism efforts on the gospel itself. All in all, in our pursuit for the glory of God, we must avoid causing believers to sin and avoid causing unnecessary offense to believers. This is how we glorify God by giving no offense. Now we turn to the second command, glorify God by pleasing others. Glorify God by pleasing others. Verse 33 says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. Paul says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do. This is a continuation of his command. First, give no offense. And second, try to please everyone in everything that you do. Just as with the give no offense command, at first glance, this command is saying something other than what it actually does mean. So Paul says that he tries to please everyone in everything that he does. We could take this command to mean that we should try to be people pleasers, right? That we should always seek to do whatever it takes to make people like us. Bending over backwards to do whatever people want us to do. Does this mean that Paul is telling us to be people pleasers and do those things? No. We know from Paul's ministry and from several verses in the Bible that Paul sought to please man, no, sought to please God, not man. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. We know from verses like these that Paul lived to please God, and he wants us to do the same. So what does he mean by verse 33 here? He continues with, Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Paul has previously called the church to avoid causing harm to others. Now we see him telling the church to seek the good of others. Paul does not want us to please others so they like us, but he wants us to seek the advantage of others for their good. In this verse and the surrounding context, there are two major ways that we are told to seek the advantage of others. First, Paul tells them in verse 33, he says, Seek the advantage of others so that they might be saved. Being saved, salvation... Um, is something we often hear about in the church, but let's not skip past it today and just assume we know what it means. The most clear meaning of being saved is, of course, salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. This command to seek the advantage of others is first a command for believers to seek the salvation of unbelievers. It is a command to share the gospel with unbelievers. There's anyone to... Here today that isn't familiar with the concept of being saved, of salvation, being saved means being redeemed from eternal separation from God. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners who have been separated from God, that we rebel against God, and that we deserve punishment. The Bible teaches that God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, and cannot just excuse our sin. However, God loves us and did not leave us in that situation. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and die as the perfect sacrifice for us so that we may be reconnected with God and may have eternal life with Him. As believers, part of living for the glory of God means taking that message to unbelievers. It means sharing the gospel with those who need it, seeking their advantage by telling them the ways that they might be saved. While this command to seek the advantage of others most clearly applies to sharing the gospel with unbelievers, there's an additional application here. 
Seeking the advantage of others also means sacrificially laying down our own rights and our own desires for the benefit of other people. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gives several examples of rights and desires that he lays aside for the sake of his ministry, such as the right to be paid for his work or the right to marry. This idea is brought together in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. In this verse, Paul says that he is free from all. What he means is that he has been set free from sin by Christ, and he has been given certain rights and freedoms as a Christian, like being set free from the Old Testament law. Essentially, Paul has been set free to live how he sees fit, as long as he is living for Christ. In verse 19, Paul explains that he doesn't use that freedom for himself. He doesn't use it for his own benefit. He uses it to be a servant to others. He says to win more of them, meaning to share the gospel with them and encourage them. He uses his freedom to bring glory to God and to love others, while he could be doing things that are more beneficial to him. Paul doesn't insist on his rights or on doing the things that are good for him, the things that he wants. He says that he will make sacrifices at the first opportunity if it meant he would be able to share the gospel with someone. Again, the idea for us here is to live sacrificially for the benefit of others. This means denying ourselves and proactively seeking the good of others. It means always being on the lookout for ways that we may minister to others, encourage them, build them up, and help people around us. It means asking ourselves constantly, what more can we do to serve the people around us? It means looking for ways that we might be able to use our time and energy to benefit others for their advantage. So here's a modern day example of how we might make sacrifices for the benefit of others. We might partake in an activity we don't particularly enjoy, but that someone else does for the sake of being able to connect with someone and build them up. For me, this might mean playing basketball. I am terrible at basketball. I can't catch passes, I can't shoot, I can't dribble, and I'm a lot more likely to sabotage my team by getting hit in the face with the ball than I am by actually helping the team. But for whatever reason, at youth camps and youth ministry events, I always end up working with the kids that love basketball. Somehow, that just happens. I could play with them, or I could not, right? I have the right and freedom to play basketball or not. However, what's the best thing to do to reach these kids? It's to play basketball and embarrass myself for the sake of building gospel relationship with the kids. To lay down what I want so that others might benefit. That is what this looks like. Seeking the advantage of others means this. We should be willing to sacrifice what we desire or what is best for us for the salvation and benefit of others. This is how we glorify God, by seeking the advantage of others. Okay. Don't cause others to stumble and live sacrificially for the benefit of others, for God's glory, not our own. Sounds easy enough, right? It's part of our mission statement, church. It's to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people. Now let's go out and do it. It's easy, simple. But something we haven't talked about is the reality that we tend to be self-centered that we tend to want glory for ourselves, that we tend to want to do things for our benefit. We don't wake up every day and right away just ask ourselves how we can live for the glory of God and the good of others. We think about going back to sleep or how we can make the day easier for us. 
We want to live for our glory and our good every day, but it is not natural for us to do the things we've talked about in this passage. Paul knows this, um, and because of this, he ends this section with verse 1 of chapter 11, which says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul has given examples of things that he does throughout this letter, instructing the Corinthians to do what he does. He does this not out of pride, but to give an example for the church to follow. Now, however, he points them to the person that is the ultimate example of loving others for the glory of God, Jesus. Jesus perfectly glorified the Father by the way he loved others. He was never a stumbling block to others. He was the opposite. He didn't get in anyone's way. He showed them the true path to true saving faith. While others were rejecting people based on their past or their sins or their lineage, Jesus invited everyone to him. He invited everyone to hear the life-saving message of the gospel and to repent and believe in him. He did this with the Samaritan woman that others would have turned away because of who she was. He never got in the way of people coming to faith in him. He instead invited everyone to know him and showed them the way that they might be saved. Jesus also sought the advantage of others. He gave an example for others to follow by perfectly loving others, by putting others first and teaching his followers to do the same. He never sought his own advantage over anyone else's. In fact, we saw in the Gospel of Matthew a few weeks ago that he prayed this to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. He was willing to sacrifice his desires and rights, and he perfectly obeyed the Father's will. And ultimately, he sought the greatest advantage for others. He died for others. He took on himself the wrath of God that, sinners, that self-centered people deserved so that they would be forgiven and have eternal life with the Father. Not only did he perfectly glorify the Father in this, these things, church, but he did these things for us. He laid down his life for us, for you and me, so that we could be saved. He sought our advantage. Paul points the church to Jesus now, not just as an example, but he points to Jesus as the one who did these things for us first. It is out of gratitude for Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives Paul and us, self-centered people, the ability to sacrificially love others. It is only through Jesus, out of gratitude for what he has done and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are able to do these things. It's Jesus that transforms our hearts, and we must pray to him and lean on him as we seek to glorify God through our love for others. So church, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, let's glorify God by loving others just as Jesus loved us first.